History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 81, Kunaksa. Are you all ready? Because this is going to be the single most dramatic, cinematic, action movie event in Achaemenid history. For the last three episodes, I've been building up this sort of fraternal cold war between the sons of Darius II and Parasatis with Arsaces taking up his father's blessing to become King Artaxerxes II, and Cyrus the Younger having their mother's support to become King Cyrus III. There was an assassination plot, forgiveness, lies, subterfuge. And over the course of spring and summer 401 BC, Cyrus marched east with an army of his subjects, supporters, and Greek mercenaries to face his brother in battle. Picking up right where I left off, Cyrus had begun to think that his brother wasn't going to face him on the battlefield at all, and had allowed the army to relax a bit even though they were just 50 miles away from Babylon, and possibly much closer since Xenophon's description of the return trip doesn't make a ton of sense otherwise. In any case, Somewhere southwest of modern Baghdad, one of Cyrus's scouts brought word that Artaxerxes' army was headed right for them. 
The camp burst into activity as they drew up into their proper battle formations and secured the baggage train behind their lines. According to Plutarch, Artaxerxes really did not want to fight his brother, and had to be convinced by Tirabazus, the regional governor of western Armenia. He was probably one of Statira's distant cousins, or perhaps a brother-in-law, and was highly regarded by Artaxerxes. Plutarch frames this as Artaxerxes not wanting to fight Cyrus, but then he portrays all of Tirabazus's arguments about the relative strength of the Loyalist army. They were a larger force. They had more experienced generals. What Plutarch doesn't include, but I think may have been the actual scenario, is a debate over whether to face Cyrus in the field or withstand a siege in Babylon or one of the empire's other more eastern fortresses. On one hand, if Artaxerxes faced his brother on the field, he would have to do it in person or risk looking like a coward. If he lost the battle, either the whole war would all be over, or he would be forced to retreat back to Babylon for a siege with even fewer soldiers and less legitimacy in the eyes of his people. Any siege in Babylon would risk turning the Babylonians towards Cyrus's side. On the other hand, if Cyrus had to initiate the siege, it would overextend his supply lines and potentially villainize the usurper in the eyes of the local subjects. His mercenaries would end up trapped without pay and desert or riot. At the same time, all of those events could backfire and make Artaxerxes look like the cruel monster and spark an internal uprising. It had happened to kings in Babylon before when faced with popular enemies named Cyrus. Artaxerxes may also have been hoping for an update from Abracomus and his Syrian forces, unaware that Cyrus was now several days ahead of the satrap. Ultimately, Tirabazus prevailed on the new king, and in early September 401, Artaxerxes had as much of his own baggage train stored inside the royal traveling tent as he could, and then had his own camp fortified before heading north. Cyrus's scouts must have caught sight of the loyalist camp just as it started to mobilize. According to Xenophon, the orders to get information came in the middle of the morning, and they waited in the plains near a village called Kunaxa for hours. They were beginning to wonder if this was a false alarm, when a dust cloud appeared on the horizon a few hours after noon. It was the dust of 40,000 soldiers, dozens of chariots, and thousands of horses approaching from Babylon. It was a huge flat plain, and it took another few hours for the image to become clear. As Artaxerxes' force approached, a huge black mass of indistinct shapes emerged from the pale desert dust. As they drew nearer and nearer, Cyrus's army began to catch flashes of light as the sun reflected off the bronze and iron of the enemy's weapons and armor. It's no small feat to get 30,000 people in battle formation. Cyrus started to worry about how long it was taking for the Greeks to finish forming their lines. By this time, Cyrus had switched from his traveling chariot to his personal warhorse and rode over to the Greeks to make sure everything was alright. As the king approached their lines, 
Xenophon was the first officer he encountered, and as the author of the Anabasis, the Athenian recorded his brief conversation with Cyrus the Younger. Xenophon seems to have known a bit of Aramaic, and Cyrus had picked up a bit of both Aramaic and Greek, so they were able to communicate directly. But Xenophon also mentions translators for most of Cyrus's major conversations, so the language barrier was definitely still there. While he was talking with Xenophon, Cyrus heard a whisper running up and down the Greek lines. Xenophon told him that it was the predetermined phrase to signal that the battle was imminent. Curious, Cyrus asked what the signal phrase was. Xenophon told him that it was Zeus Soter Kainike, Zeus the Savior and Victory, invoking support from the Greek king of the gods. And Cyrus responded, in my own translation, Hmm, I accept that, so go ahead. Xenophon presents this in a kind of triumphant tone, but it really reads to me like Cyrus just didn't know what the heck Zeus the Savior and Victory meant. As his brother approached, Cyrus had his magi and other priests and oracles making sacrifices and reading natural omens and kept getting favorable signs. Before long, the two armies were facing one another. Less than 600 yards or meters apart, they were standing still and waiting with nothing but the wind and the occasional sound of metal grating as someone shifted in their armor, interspersed with the sounds of anxious horses. From west to east, Cyrus's army was arranged intentionally to try and counteract the tactics he expected from Artaxerxes. 1,000 cavalry from Paphlagonia guarded the right flank, right up against the Euphrates River. Next to them was the core of Clearchus's Greek forces, about 10,000 heavy hoplites, and to their left, a further contingent of Greek peltasts, archers, and other missile troops under the command of Menon. To the left of the peltasts, Cyrus positioned himself at the center of the army, sitting at the head of his hand-picked 600 heavy cavalry bodyguards, with 20 scythe chariots in front of the center. Finally, furthest to the left, the last contingent of the army was levied infantry under the command of Ariaios. Even this wing of the army would have skewed more heavily towards infantry than a normal Persian force, purely as a consequence of where they were from. The people of Western Anatolia had all fought in very similar styles to the Greeks. There would have been poorer and more inland levies rounding out with some light infantry, and probably some Iranian archers. But the Lydians, Carians, Phrygians, Cilicians, etc. all would have looked very similar to the Greeks, but with more regional variation in equipment. Cyrus had taken advantage of his easy access to Mediterranean purple dye and distributed purple tunics and surcoats to all of his cavalry and Persian officers. So Cyrus got to use the color of royalty, but Artaxerxes distributed bright white livery to his men, which may have been intended as a sign of religious devotion, since white was long associated with Ahura Mazda and ritual purity. 
Artaxerxes' army was the mirror image. Cavalry along the river, a large block of infantry covered by archers, a block of cavalry along with the great king, and then a second block of infantry. Of course, each group was larger than their counterparts in Cyrus's army, probably more like 800 to 1,000 cavalry in the center, and 18,000 infantry on either side. Fifty scythe chariots were placed in front of the center line. However, Artaxerxes' forces were probably somewhat less heavily armored and more diverse than their opponents. While Cyrus really only had access to Greece, Thrace, and Anatolia, Artaxerxes had the whole empire. Abracomus brought Assyrians, but they were still MIA, somewhere up the Tigris. Tissaphernes brought 500 cavalry and integrated them into the larger Iranian force on the far left wing, parallel to the 1,000 Paphlagonians. The eldest son of Cyanesis III brought a few hundred Cilicians, and you just hope that for all of their sakes, the Cilicians weren't facing one another in this battle. Xenophon does say that other Greeks identified Egyptians in Artaxerxes' right wing, but Egypt was in revolt at the time, so that seems doubtful. His description also sounds a lot more like typical Iranian or Babylonian Takabara. They were probably commanded by another Gabrias. This guy is only mentioned this one time, but it seems plausible that he was a relative of the Gabrias that was briefly satrap of Babylon back in episode 74. Arbakis, the satrap of Media, also came down with his troops and took command of Artaxerxes' left flank. There was also a sizable Armenian contingent under the command of Tirabazus and his fellow Armenian regional governor, Orontes, son of the king's eye, Artaxerxes, who seems to have been operating as some kind of interim satrap. Orontes took command of some of the Bactrian cavalry in the center, possibly because he was originally from Bactria. Another local governor named Artaxerxes probably traveled with the Armenian contingent. He had taken charge of the Caducians after their revolt. The Caducians themselves were integrated into the larger infantry, while their governor became the cavalry commander for the Elamites. Regardless of its composition, Artaxerxes' army was at a slight infantry disadvantage. Several regions involved did have their own heavy infantry traditions, namely Cilicia and Babylonia, the Assyrian army with Phoenician soldiers would have been nearly identical to the Greeks if they'd been there. But most of the territory Artaxerxes currently had access to had a preference for light skirmishers and cavalry. Cyrus dominated the empire's usual source of heavy infantry. The last detailed information we had on Achaemenid forces and tactics was Herodotus and in the 80 years since Xerxes invaded Greece, there had been innovation. For the first time, we get a written description of heavily armored horsemen. Both king's bodyguards were armored in solid breastplates, bronze helmets, and plate armor on their thighs. This is a serious upgrade from nothing but a shirt of iron scales for the most elite commanders 
during the invasion of Greece. Both Cyrus and Artaxerxes opted to forego the helmet and display the diadem, the felt cap or ribbon that identified them as king in battle. This is also the historical debut of scythed chariots, one of the most famous but confusing weapons in the Achaemenid arsenal. They apparently weren't brand new because they weren't shocking to the Greeks. But there is no historical precedent for them, so they must have emerged somewhat recently. Based on Xenophon, we know that Cyrus anticipated that Artaxerxes would send his chariots after the Greeks. Based on a report from Xenophon that Cyrus anticipated Artaxerxes would send his chariots after the Greeks, and a healthy dose of Western narcissism, scholars have assumed that both the heavy cavalry and the scythed chariots were a direct response to the prowess of Greek hoplites and their heavy armor for centuries. That has been challenged in the last few decades of Achaemenid studies, as people started paying more attention to, you know, the Persian Empire instead of Greece. As we'll see, scythe chariots were ineffective against a Greek phalanx, and the Persians and Greeks rarely came to blows with cavalry on the field. The more likely explanation for both is that they were a response to the mass cavalry battles on the northeastern steppe and spread into the regular Persian army from there. Infantry can jump out of the way when a chariot with no turning radius charges them. That's much harder for horses that are already moving at speed. Likewise, the larger emphasis on cavalry on the steppe would have driven more cavalry skirmishes, thus driving the need for more armor and more melee weapons on horseback, rather than the traditional tactic of rushing in, firing arrows, retreating, and repeating. But it was all here, and everyone was just waiting for somebody to do something. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Cyrus was a little surprised. He had expected his brother to charge first in an attempt to overwhelm the smaller force, but Artaxerxes was holding still. Exactly what happened as the battle began is hard to say, even with eyewitnesses. Xenophon doesn't report a cavalry duel, but Theseus did according to Plutarch, who also cites a second contemporary source named Danon. How do you decide which witness is more accurate? Theseus is a drama queen, but this is also where Xenophon starts mythologizing and exaggerating the performance of his mercenaries. Frankly, given other historical uses of duels, I do think Theseus' story makes sense. As Cyrus was formulating his plan for attack, a single rider came from the loyalist line. Cyrus's representative went out to meet him in the middle of the field. It was Artaxerxes, the governor of the Caduceans, challenging Cyrus to a duel. Much like the rebellion of Megabyzus two generations earlier, this was Cyrus's personal war. If he died in a duel, it was all over, and Cyrus was just bold and talented enough to rise to the challenge. So the two horsemen took up their positions. Each had a quiver of javelins at his side, and they charged one another. And this is where the advancements in Persian cavalry proved their worth. Artaxerxes' first javelin struck Cyrus square in the chest, but deflected off his armor. Cyrus had the wind knocked out of him, and couldn't steady himself in time to return the favor during the initial charge. As the two riders turned for another pass, Cyrus was faster and threw his javelin while Artaxerxes was still facing the other direction. It went straight through the governor's neck and Cyrus rode back to his own line, a little bruised, but also a little more confident. This demanded a shakeup in Artaxerxes' command structure. Artaxerxes had been the commander of their king's cavalry guard. Tissaphernes was called over from the left flank to take over that position. While the loyalists accommodated their loss, Cyrus was giving orders. Both kings and the cavalry held their positions. Ariaios and the levied troops began moving at the same time as Clearchus and his mercenaries. Before setting out, Clearchus personally implored Cyrus not to take any more wild risks. Tens of thousands of men had risked it all to see him successful and would all be punished as invaders and traitors if he died in an act of childish heroism. Or at least, that's what Clearchus claimed after the battle. Greek armies from proper city-states were often accompanied by a chorus that would sing a paean, 
during the battle, a sort of war hymn for their own polis. This was half religious prayer and half morale booster for the soldiers, but it's hard to imagine how often the soldiers could hear the chorus if it was in a safe place. Not this time. The Greek phalanx and their peltists on the left were moving at a slow and deliberate pace as they began singing the paeon. So picture this from Artaxerxes' side. You have this group of hardened veteran mercenaries from the barbaric west marching in a steady, surprisingly unified formation, heavily armored, and chanting a bizarre song in a language you cannot understand. As predicted, Artaxerxes ordered his scythed chariots to charge the infantry. According to Xenophon, they didn't injure a single Greek and only carved through the other infantry block a few times. Cyrus's archers concentrated their fire on the chariots as soon as they started moving, and by the time they reached the phalanx, the drivers had all been killed, so the horses just kept going in a straight line, and the soldiers parted to let them through. They kept singing the paeon until they came within range of Artaxerxes' archers. At that point, they employed the tried-and-true Greek strategy of breaking into a battle cry and charging the Persians at speed to escape the hail of arrows. Xenophon would have us believe that the Persian infantry broke into a retreat before the Greeks even reached them, but all of the other sources make it clear that they skirmished before the Persians broke and the Greeks killed the fleeing soldiers for a bit before Clearchus managed to turn them around and attack Artaxerxes' center. Xenophon's version of the story may be related to Arbaces, the satrap of Media who was commanding the loyalist forces facing the Greek mercenaries. Just as the battle began, Arbaces and some of his men broke ranks and moved away from the rest of their comrades, before crossing the battlefield under a banner of surrender. Arbaces actually tried to switch sides and join Cyrus at the last moment. On the far side of the battlefield, Ariaios had a harder slog. Not only did the scythe chariots do more damage on that side, but Artaxerxes' 2nd infantry block launched a countercharge and met Ariaios with more fight. It's worth remembering that there were local Babylonians and potentially the satrap of Babylon leading the charge here. Their livelihoods were more at risk if a victorious invading army got free reign of Babylonia. As one side of the battlefield completely fell to his mercenaries and the other entered into a brutal deadlock, Cyrus made his move. His brother was visible in the center of his own cavalry formation but all of Artaxerxes' chariots were wrecked. As the center right on Artaxerxes' side began to give way to the Greeks, Cyrus's remaining forces launched forward. His scythe chariots were used as they might have been intended on the steppe, plowing a path through Artaxerxes' cavalry formation. Cyrus and his companions surged into the gap, aiming for Artaxerxes himself. Dead horses, injured riders, and wrecked chariots were everywhere. The Loyalist cavalry launched into a counterattack, and in the melee, Cyrus and his closest personal friends and nobles were separated from the main force. But so were their counterparts, 
and they entered into a close-range personal duel. Once again, Cyrus was slow on the draw, but Artaxerxes' javelin didn't hit him. Maybe it was a warning, maybe Artaxerxes' aim was shaky in the thick of an increasingly chaotic fight. But this first projectile hit and killed one of Cyrus's close advisors. Cyrus wheeled around for his own attack, and the javelin went clean through his brother's armor, possibly piercing the place where it would connect at the shoulder. It plunged into Artaxerxes' chest and knocked him off his horse. Tirabazus, that Armenian governor, was nearby and managed to get his injured king onto a horse and flee the battlefield. As the ranking Persian official left on the field, Tissaphernes tried to retake control of the situation with little luck. Cyrus and his entourage began shouting cries of victory in Old Persian, trying to get their enemies to stand down and obey their new king of kings. But many of Artaxerxes' cavalry were still personal friends of the elder brother and kept fighting. In the carnage, Cyrus's felt cap, the royal diadem that identified him as the great king, fell off of his head. A minor Persian infantry officer named Mithridates, apparently someone who had just been pressed into the chaos by the Greek advance, saw Cyrus carving his way through Artaxerxes' men. Later, Mithridates would use the missing tiara to explain himself, saying he didn't realize who it was, but bear in mind, he was telling this story to Cyrus's famously vengeful mother. An ordinary man who had just been pushed into the fray trying to get away from a band of violent mercenaries on foot saw a cavalryman from the enemy army with no helmet and thrust his spear upwards, ramming it through Cyrus's cheekbone, narrowly missing his eye. The second son of Darius and Parasadus fell off his horse. The saddlecloth slipped off the horse's back as it ran away, and one of Mithridates' men picked it up for him as a trophy of war. Cyrus had been horrifically wounded, but it was something that could be survived if his men could get him off the battlefield. But with his sinuses physically destroyed, blood rushing from his face, and probably some broken ribs, Cyrus couldn't mount a horse. He could barely stand. Some of his soldiers and servants tried to carry him, still in full armor and royal regalia, but he was heavy and their progress was slow. Cyrus's companions and cavalry were trying to fend off Artaxerxes' remaining supporters, but the group carrying Cyrus ran into a group of Carian servants who had accompanied Tissaphernes in his flight from Anatolia. The Carians had no idea who they had found, but they saw purple tunics and made to defend themselves and fight the enemy. Exhausted and still trying to carry their king, Cyrus's men were not prepared to fight back. In the skirmish, Cyrus was stabbed through the thigh, severing his femoral artery. Even if Cyrus could have survived being stabbed through the face on a dusty battlefield, this was a death sentence. Under ideal circumstances, a femoral bleed will kill you in a few minutes. With all of the other injuries sustained, Cyrus probably didn't even last that long. Seeing the king fall, his closest companions rushed to try and at least save their friend's body. They were pursued by the loyalists, and after the battle, 
eight of them were found in a pile over Cyrus's corpse, surrounded by the horses and bodies of the loyalists. At the fringes of the battlefield, Tirabazus had gotten Artaxerxes to Theseus for some impromptu battlefield surgery. They got the blood-soaked armor and tunic off of the king and discovered a surprisingly shallow wound. The armor had done its job after all, and slowed Cyrus's javelin enough to save Artaxerxes' life. Theseus was able to staunch the bleeding, suture and bandage the wound, and get Artaxerxes back on a horse. It's entirely plausible that his disoriented state after the initial injury was due more to a concussion than blood loss. As Cyrus the Younger was struggling for his life, the tide was turning against the Greek mercenaries as the Loyalist cavalry started giving them their full attention, and the infantry they had previously defeated started turning around. Unaware that Cyrus was dead, they retreated towards the Tigris. A similar scene played out on the far side of the battlefield. Ariaios had to retreat back towards their encampment and was almost encircled. Even as 10,000 Greek mercenaries or more retreated, King Artaxerxes II had heard the rumor that his brother was dead and was sending everyone still available out onto the battlefield to search through hundreds of corpses and find Cyrus's body. Artaxerxes was victorious, but he had to be sure that this was the end. It was Artaxerxes, the elder Hidarnid ruling Armenia as King's Eye, who found Cyrus. He found some of Cyrus's most committed servants mourning near the center of the battle, and rushed to inform the king. Artaxerxes and his entourage rode out to see the body for themselves. Royals and close friends of the Achaemenid family these people were able to identify Cyrus on sight and confirmed his death. Artaxerxes ordered his brother's body beheaded and its right hand removed, both to present proof to the remaining pro-Cyrus partisans and as a ritual punishment for treason. When the soldiers that had been marching with Cyrus for a few months saw their leader's head held up by Artaxerxes by the hair, broken and bloody, the rebellion was well and truly over. Ariaios gave orders to retreat, leading the small number of soldiers he could up the Euphrates. Known as Cyrus the Younger, he was 23 years old and had been king in his own plans for three years and publicly for just over a month. And that was the end of King Cyrus III, the great king, mighty king, King of Lands, King of the Four Corners of the Earth, and King of Kings, Kashayathia Kashayathiyanam. Artaxerxes' army was permitted to plunder the enemy camp, but Artaxerxes' personal guards were sent to claim Cyrus's personal belongings, servants, and the rest of his household, including a small number of concubines. For better or worse, Capturing and securing Cyrus's female sexual partners was absolutely essential. Artaxerxes had no way of knowing if they might be pregnant, and any potential son of Cyrus that escaped could be raised as a king in exile and come back to try and seize power later. We've seen different versions of this play out before, whether it was Darius II's mass fratricide 
or Artaxerxes I killing his rival's sons. Or Darius the Great marrying every tasted woman he could find. As it happened, none of Cyrus's concubines were pregnant in the end. But it was better safe than sorry. Artaxerxes had no intention of physically harming these women, but he had to integrate them into his own household and harem to secure the line of succession. But the available precedents were a mixed bag, and at least one girl from Miletus got free from her captors and fled the camp. She saw the Greek mercenaries in the distance and took off toward them, alongside a growing number of common soldiers, servants, and pro-Cyrus Persians who just feared for their lives now that Cyrus was dead. After getting away from the battlefield, Clearchus had sent a detachment of the mercenary army to run back across the plains and capture Cyrus's baggage train. You know, all of the merchants, administrators, prostitutes, servants for hire, and pack animals that followed the army. Also, all of the money and food. It had been left waiting a mile or two behind Cyrus's actual camp. They successfully defended most of the baggage and camp followers, and then provided protection for any refugees that managed to reach the line. When Artaxerxes realized that the Greeks had taken the baggage, he ordered some of his infantry to get back in formation and try and take the Greeks out from the rear. The baggage train was in the middle of the plain, so the Persians went up alongside the Euphrates and tried to make a wide arc around to the undefended side of the baggage. But the Greeks managed to swing their lines around and the Persians called off their charge. When the Persian infantry tried to get around to the undefended side again now that the Greeks had switched, the Greeks formed up and switched again, started singing the paean, and charged themselves. The beluggered Persians broke and retreated to the village of Canoxa. But on the far side of Canoxa, Tissaphernes had gathered up his cavalry and on his own initiative tried to assault the retreating Greeks but Greek Peltasts used the same tactics they had employed on the scythed chariots, opening up gaps to let the horsemen pass through, while moving too fast to return and pelting them with javelins and arrows as they went. Tissaphernes was forced to retreat himself, but joined up with the infantry in the village and rode up over a small hill, surprising the advancing Greek force. Rather than charging them head-on, Tissaphernes had the infantry disperse, and led the cavalry back down the hill, around the Greek army, and raided the baggage train, seizing the Greek supplies and dispersing or capturing the refugees. And with that, the battle was over. Artaxerxes elected to leave the Greeks confused and dismayed, sitting outside of Canaxa with no supplies to speak of, and had his army turn around and go back to Babylon. The war was over, the Battle of Canaxa was won, and Artaxerxes II would remain King of Kings. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find an about page, a family tree, and the support page where you can financially support this project with things like Patreon, which gets you access to monthly bonus episodes or ad-free listening or discounts on merchandise, depending on your level of subscription. 
but you can also support the show for free. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to Spotify, go to wherever they do reviews these days, and leave a review. Tell people how much you like it. If you want to tell specific people and link me on social media, you can do that at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until next week, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.